Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Unathletic Sports Talk Radio Guy. Mr. Unathletic Sports Talk Radio Guy. You know everything there is to know about the world of sports, except how to play them. No coordination. You talk sports for eight hours a day. Which is seven hours and 45 minutes more than anyone listens. Is anybody out there? Those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. Those who can't do or teach, talk. I'm really good at talking. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Unathletic Supporter. You may never make the company softball team, but you'll always be a hit with us. Mr. Baseball became a passion in Cuba because it was anti-Spanish, because it was American. Spanish immigration had brought a lot of soccer to Cuba. Cubans viewed it with disdain. They called it the Galician kick, la patada gallega, because, I mean, football is played with, a, 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 with parts of the body that are not as dignified. Your feet... Get back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki. Half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pop, where... We collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, you cement freaks? What's good? And that data, it just keeps streaming in on the six-week-old MLB season. Not sure how many of you saw this, but 1,518,015 people have bum-rushed the stadium turnstiles so far this season, which is the best Weekend attendance across the MLB in April and May in seven years. And look, ain't it ironic that last week on the Brett Show, I openly questioned the health and viability of baseball going forward. And then I come across some of these early returns on the stats, and, and, and I'm reinvigorated. I, I just go back to a few months ago, all the pissing and moaning and the futile efforts to keep the action-draining shift around. It, it was so silly. I've been saying it for years. The ship sucked. It was not attracting new fans. It was boring. Sorry, Dead Boy Era guys, but it was. I, I didn't pay good money to see Adley Rockstar butt against the shift all day. I came to see him swing it, and if the game truly dictated a bunt, so fucking be it. I love seeing baseballs scorch right back up the box and make it in the center field again. You know, kind of the way we have always taught kids how to hit grounders, hard and up the middle. I've also enjoyed the athleticism of many of uh, these middle infielders, uh, you know, bringing that athleticism back and... I've also enjoyed the fraudulent middle infielders being exposed this year. Now that they can't, you know, hold hands with the infielder next to them. 
And just because you middle infielders can't figure out how to get Bryce Harper out, it doesn't mean we need to change the game to make it easier for you. By sucking the life out of the fucking game. And for the first time in a few years, I feel like the game is more balanced than it's been. In a long time. As long as the pitchers ain't cheating, and the defense isn't playing this nickel and dime NFL zone defense horseshit. With the defensive defensive ends lined up on the other side of the offensive scrimmage of the uh, scrimmage line. Almost all American sports have an illegal defense. So why why should baseball be any different? And honestly, folks, I'm going to let you in on a secret that no one really talks about in regard to the new pitch clock situation. Somewhere in the 90s, and I don't know if I, it was the rise of PEDs, the contract explosions, and guys walking up to the dish with, you know, their Mr. T gold necklace starter kit on, you know, all this fucking batting armor, and the game slowed down from the pace of what it was when I was a kid. And here's how I will show you. You can all try this at home and see for yourself. And hang in with, with me here, folks. I, we'll get to this week's topic in a hot minute. So, the, the 1988 World Series, Dodgers A's. All of us older senior meds, we remember the indelible moment between Kirk Gibson and Dennis Eckersley, Game 1. And Gibby hits one of the biggest home runs in baseball, virtually one leg off the greatest closer in the game during that era. Well, go back and take a look at that A.B. with a watch. The pacing of that A.B. made it even more dramatic. Look at that video and time it between pitches. I've done it. Not once in that whole sequence would Eck have been hit with a pitch clock violation. And there was no clock. Because you didn't fucking need it. The pace was fine. Kirk Gibson was not no more Garcia Parra standing, stepping out of the fucking box, you know, fucking with his gloves and some, you know, little ADHD kind of fit here. In fact, you could go through that game in its entirety, and I think I counted like four violations or some shit. The 90s came. And I'd get to Camden Yards for a 7.30 start and leave that joint after nine innings at 12.30. So, look, I'm loving the pace now. The only people that should be complaining about the fucking pace are stadium beer vendors who look you in your eye when you buy a $12 beer plus tip before the seventh inning. I'm not thrilled with ghost runners in extra innings, but if that is the compromise to get rid of the shit, I'll take that every fucking day. Baseball, unlike politics, it has to be negotiable. Sometimes you have to give to get in life. And baseball is life. Now, bring on radical realignment. I'm 100% serious. Let's get radical, baby. I'm I'm all about it. Oh, and speaking of divisions, look at that freaking AL East. It's downright scary. Every single one of those teams could end up in first or last with a winning record. Facts. In my 45 years of consuming baseball, I have never seen a more imposing baseball division in my life. Now, maybe some of you old-timers have seen better. Drop me a line, backwardskpod at gmail.com. Now, I think I might touch on that a little bit next week's pod after I do a little research. This might be the year where three wild cards come out of the AL East. You know, if you look at the landscape of how 2023 season is currently playing out. But look, it's time to get on this show on the road. I want to thank y'all for stepping into my baseball dojo this week here at Backwards K-Pod. And I like to take a look under the hood of some of baseball's most Eradicable moments and characters that have been woven into the fabric of American sports, history, culture, and society. And with that in mind, I see that the catcher is coming down. The infield is throwing that rock around. So I'm ready to clear the platform, load up our time travel choo choo. I'm calling it all aboard. As I'm going to set our time and destination for September 5th, 1938, 
Mexico City, Mexico. And this week, we're going to learn about Martin Digo. Maybe one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived. The truth is, in my opinion, he is certainly one of the most underappreciated baseball players in the history of the game. And if you're one of these list guys, and your greatest ball player list has Josh Gibson on it, well, enough respect, Dell. At least I know you put some thought into your list. But if it doesn't have Martin Digo on it, and he's not higher than Josh Gibson, it's not credible to me. If Digo isn't on it at all, it's not even worth looking at or commenting on. Facts. And in today's context, the only thing we can compare him to is dual threat Shohei Otani. But even the great Shohei Otani could never do what Digo did. Some say Otani is on the verge of an $800 million contract, and God bless him. But if Otani is theoretically worth $800 million, then Digo should bring in a billion today. You know, on today's free agent market. Like, for real. No bullshit. A billion. With a B, folks. So, here we are. Please be careful stepping off that train. Mexico City, September 5th, 1938. It's freaking oppressively hot today, right? Let's head into the stadium where the Mexican League pennant is on the line. The team known as Agrario, led by the legendary Satchel Page, is battling Aguilla for the championship. The once-faltering league has experienced a renaissance this past season when they strengthened the league with frontline Negro League stars such as Josh Gibson, Ray Dandridge, and this biggest draw of them all, Satchel Paige. And for eight tense, hard-fought innings to ageless warrior Paige, he battled pitch for pitch with Cuban ace rival Martin Digo and what may have been the pitching matchup of the segregated era. Digo would have an 18 and 2 record with a minuscule .92 ERA and a league best 184 strikeouts that year. So, with a 1-1 deadlock tied to eighth, Page succumbs to the brutal Mexican humidity first, and he is relieved by another highly talented Cuban arm, hurler Ramon Bragana. Both teams go scoreless in the eighth. Agario fails to push a run across in the top of the ninth. In the bottom half of the inning, the game's tension was relieved when the star slugger, who is batting 387 for the Aguia team, he barrels up a Borgogna offering over the center field wall for the walk-off championship homer. Now, if I were to try to sell a baseball script with a guy who went 19-2 with a .92 ERA, who... I'm sorry, 18-2 with a .92 ERA who not only outdueled the great Satchel Page for the championship, but he was also the 387 batting title winner, Star Slugger, who dropped walk-off dong, and he was the manager of the winning team. I'd be laughed out the door. No one would buy that script in a million years, but it's 100% true. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seem heads of all ages. I present to you, Martin Digo, Black Baseball's true El Immortal, or the Immortal, as he was dubbed in Cuba. Not only was Zigo the Mexican League's most dominant baseball force in a talented league, his many feats are lost in time. And the tales that have been left behind merely scratch the surface of the legacy he left behind as the greatest player to ever come out of the baseball-crazed nation of Cuba. In 1937, he tosses the first ever no-hitter. No-run game for his Veracruz team versus Nogales. And I can't stress this enough, folks. And look, I've done some of the best of the best here at PKP. You can look at my catalog of shows and see that. But Digo is truly a talent of legendary proportions. And to this day, he remains the immortal embodiment of a sports icon in Cuba. Their greatest star 
was one of the most versatile players to ever live. And his star player profile remains a virtual mystery. And sadly, in some cases, as an afterthought. Especially for those who reside outside of Latin America. He was a relative unknown to North American fans, along with the bulk of Negro Leaguers not named Satchel, Josh, or Cool Papa. Until his strange-sounding last name was added decades later to the list of immortals who are now housed in Cooperstown, New York. And ironically, before he was enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, he had already been inducted into Baseball Hall of Fames in Mexico, Venezuela, and his native Cuba. And that, folks, makes him the most decorated baseball player ever, black or white. Even though he is an all-forgotten conversation piece to North American baseball fans' lexicon. At six foot one, he was a tall, fit giant among the barnstorming baseball circuits of the 1920s and 30s. His absence from the MLB stage has kept him in the shadows of baseball fans in the United States. The selection for Deagle's uh, Cooperstown induction by the Negro Leagues Committee of 1971 meant that he would become only the second Latin-born player after the tragically martyred Roberto Clemente to have a bust in the hollowed halls. So think about that, folks. 52 years ago, the Baseball Hall of Fame only had two Latin-born players. My, oh, my. Well, I mean, what a half-century it has been to watch the evolution of the Latin baseball player, right? The Latin ball player evolution that I've witnessed in baseball the last 30 years or so, it must have been in a lot of ways like watching the black evolution in baseball following Jackie's run. You know, watching the Dobies and the Campies and so on and so on. I feel grateful to have seen the evolution of Latin ballers, but it's still sad to think how long, you know, progress has to take sometimes. But I digress. I should mention that Digo's stature on his native island is so entrenched in the Cuban conscience that he has literally overcame a more than a half century of post-revolution efforts to stamp out any and all records of earlier achievement of professional baseball on that island. And despite the many victories amassed by the Cuban national team with amateur athletes after the 1959 revolution, which included nearly five decades of total superiority in amateur and professional baseball tournaments, it is still, and probably always will be, the pre-Castro barnstorming exploits of Martin Digo that towers over the baseball conscience of Cuba. Fidel Castro's rise to power, it changed the course of baseball in Cuba as drastically as he had changed the course of the Cuban people's daily lives. But the old fellas who remember a different Cuba before the revolution, you know, they're all died out. But those guys, they refuse to let the memory of El Immortal die. To a fan, they would concur that Martin Gigo is the greatest ball player that the island ever produced. And thankfully, they passed his stories down and his legend is strong on that island. El Immortal is everywhere on Cuba to this day. His visage, his visage is prominently displayed on murals throughout Havana. He is acknowledged as two parts Babe Ruth, two parts Joe DiMaggio, and two parts Walter Johnson. Wrapped up in a muscular, dark-skinned package with a bow. A real gift from the baseball gods to the fans of the game. Unfortunately, his race and color would make him the greatest lost export for several generations of North American fans. As Seamheads, most of us would say, we love the versatile, versatile guy. The one-dimensional guy who does one tool at a high level is, you know, he's cool if he's historic at it, like, say, Mark McGuire. But for the most part, our favorite guys are multifaceted studs who can beat you in all sorts of ways. For example, my favorite two players in the game right now, Shohei Otani and Adley Rockstar. Both of them have many ways to beat you. 
And these type of players are the guys that capture the fans' imagination for the most part. So, with that in mind, picture in your beautiful steam, steam head minds a baseball player who can and does play every single position on the diamond at a high level. And I'm not talking as part of, you know, a gimmick or this once-in-a-lifetime Burt Campanera, Caesar Tovar, or Steve Lyons deal to get in the record books. I'm talking about as an everyday occurrence. Not only does this dude play every position, but his contemporaries and rivals alike insist he plays, you know, they insisted that he played all-star caliber defense at eight of those positions. I mean, folks, we are amazed, and rightfully so, how Otani is an elite arm at bat. But Digo was the top of the heap at pitcher and seven other positions, and he was, you know, gold glove caliber. So, if you can possibly wrap your imagination around this type of phenom, this type of player in your seamhead mind, then you have now taken a glimpse of the great Martin Digo. And that is the correct pronunciation for his name. I think it's, you know, look, I'm, I'm not the strongest in Spanish. But I think, you know, we need to have a little more respect for these guys. It's not Martin Dehigo. It's not Martin Dehigo. I've seen it spelled Dehago. The correct pronunciation is Martin Digo. And though his countrymen gave him the moniker El Immortal, he was known far and wide from Venezuela to Kansas City as the Maestro. In accordance with his almost magical career of grace, power, and versatility that even to this day has yet to be rivaled. And though he was denied performing on the stage of the American and National League, the maestro defied all baseball logic in his time. Like a musician who was a skilled composer to only have his virtuosos fall on deaf ears, Digo's grand stage was always off the beaten path of the road less traveled. And I remember talking to former MLB player Shea Hillebrand on the show last year, and I remember how he was telling me that in the world of professional baseball, his stats are his identity. That was his brand. The numbers were a reflection of the work that he put into his crack. And it's how he feeds his family. It's, it's everything. And look, he ain't wrong, folks. For a game that is so rich in statistical records as a ball player's defining worth, the unarguable numbers by which each of our heroes are measured. Digo's true stats are not there for our admiration and inspection. As a hitter, he was prolific versus the opposition. At Mexico City, where he was mainly used as a pitcher, he carried a lifetime 317 batting average in Cuba. He had a nine shortened season, nine year shortened, nine shortened seasons with a 300 or a higher batting average. He has documented over 130 career home runs in the Cuban League, but there is at least 11 years of missing statistical data. And some may think 130 home runs, well, that ain't much. But the stadiums in Cuba, Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, they were ca- cavernous. These were not hitter ballparks, to say the least. You ain't going into Fenway and, you know, uh, you know, uh, Toronto, Rogers Center. These, these are ballparks. So, Martin could straight rank. But he was also dominant as a pitcher in a career that spanned at least a quarter of a century, including at least a dozen seasons in the Mexican Winter League seasons, as well as uh, 14 Negro League campaigns. Digo had his way with batters when he was on the bump. He threw a no-hitter in three different countries, Mexico, Venezuela, Puerto Rico. He has a documented Mexican League pitching record of 119 and 57, a verified 93 and 48 record over his uh, 12 seasons in Cuba, 218 and 106 in all Winter League and Negro League games that have been officially documented. And perhaps maybe dozen more victories that have been lost in history or through terrible or non-existent stat keeping. 
And while his raw numbers are not very well recorded, the anecdotal evidence of Digo as one of the all-time greats is truly mind-boggling. Stories of the heat he was bringing on the mound, his heavy bat he used to help out his own cause, his impeccable grace at every position on the diamond, with the exception of catcher. He occasionally played there, but the position was always his most challenging, and he never enjoyed it. But if the team needed him there, he could play it adequately enough. In the beginning of his career, he was mainly an infielder at every position. Later, he became a gold glove caliber outfielder at all three spots. And in the third act of his career, he was a premier power arm. In any league he played in, wherever he played, he was the marquee. And you best not take your eye off of him. Okay. So I tell you what. I think this is where I'm going to take a break. Please support the Grassroots Podcast Company. Uh, I'm sorry. Please support the Grassroots Company that supports your Grassroots Baseball Podcast show. Uh, let me get my thoughts together. Figure out how to bring this amazing ball player story to its conclusion. BRB Baseball Freaks. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tech's Gage Geek. Executive producer of Backwards K Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the fishing hand cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no Bay spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Ma, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com The great Martin DeHigo is not a household name. Oh, but he should be. Because there are many who believe that Martin DeHigo is the greatest baseball player of all time, black or white. One thing that we do know, he is the most versatile baseball player in the history of the sport. Oh yeah, played all nine positions and played all nine of them well. 1938, he wins the pitching title. 
composed an 18 and 2 record with a microscopic 0.90 ERA. But oh, it gets better. He hits 387 that same season and won the batting title as well. How is it possible that we don't know the name of a player of this magnitude? Sugarcane worker on the island of Cuba before the Castro-led revolution of 1959. He is dominating the game in baseball throughout all of South America. Dominican Republic, Mexico, Venezuela, Cuba, Puerto Rico, as well as the segregated Negro Leagues in North America. He is, without question, the most versatile baseball player of his day, and he probably still is to this day, as he played all nine positions. Eight of them at an elite level. And, you know, what we would call today all-star level. In 1938, he outdoors Negro League deity, uh, Danny Satchel Page to win the Mexican League pennant as the team player manager with an end-of-the-year pitching line of 18-2 with a .92 ERA, as well as the league batting title with his gaudy .387 batting average. He was the immortal maestro. At Negro League's ace pitcher, uh, schoolboy Johnny Taylor used to tell a story in which he witnessed Digo smash a line drive that nearly decapitated a shortstop. Before the shook middle infielder could even raise his hands in defense, the ball hit the outfield fence with a loud thud. Another point lower recalls his New York Cuban Giants teammate, Schoolboy Taylor, and it would have killed him. And one of the most celebrated blasts off the bat of Digo not only cleared the center field wall, but it also sailed over a weather vane high atop a house 40 feet plus behind the stadium walls, a shot approaching 500 feet in distance. There is also chatter of another ball he melted to pieces with a 500-foot blast at Pittsburgh's Greenlee Field that eventually landed on an adjacent hospital roof. In addition to his prodigious power, Martin had an arm that many say was better, was better, than Roberto Clemente's. In the 1930s, pre-game throwing exhibition, Negro Leaguer great Judy Johnson said he once saw Dio outdistance a high alive player slinging the ball from, you know, his basket-like sesto. I mean, you can wing those balls from there. He out-threw that. In addition to his physical prowess, he was a highly intelligent, crafty competitor. He once caught a ball in center field. He ran into the infield and politely asked the runner if he could dust off second base so he could see it better from the outfield. And the all-too-cooperative opponent, foolishly obliged, stepped off the bag, and Martin tagged him with a coy smile. As a runner on third, he once strolled down the baseline to home plate screaming, You balked! You balked! The stud pitcher was caught in the headlights like a poor deer, wondering what, you know, those two big lights are approaching him at, you know, high speeds. And before you know it, 
The gamesmanship pays off as Digo completes this most unorthodox home plate steal in the history of the game. Buck Leonard, who, you know, was the last real gatekeeper of the stories of the Negro Leagues, before passing that honor on to Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. He often spoke reverently of Digo. In fact, he was unequivocal in his assessment that Martin Digo is the greatest all-around baseball player he ever saw. He was my ideal ball player, he once said. Makes no difference what race either. If he's not the greatest, then I truly do not know who is. You can have your Ruths, Cobbs, and DiMaggio's. Give me Digo. And I bet I'd beat you most of the time. Of course... Martin never set out to dominate the game with his arsenal of remarkable skills, but it was easy to see early on he had raw, immense talent. As a teenager learning the game, he's taken under the wing of black barnstorming greats like Oscar, Oscar Charleston and John Henry Lloyd, who would often visit Cuba towards the end of World War I. As a 17-year-old rookie of purely raw, underdeveloped, undeveloped talent, and playing for the Havana Reds, the tallest skinny prospect from Montanzas struggled to the tune of a 179 batting average. He probably would have been cut had it not been for his above average, at times, stellar defensive play. His first trip to the mainland, United States, with the Cuban Stars in 1923, it demonstrated two things to the American Negro League's baseball fan. First of all, it's nearly impossible to kid a grounder past a skinny shortstop slash second baseman. Secondly, well, it wasn't that hard to throw a curveball by him. When he was in the box, you know, despite his weak hitting, his speed and defense drew high praise, and he was proclaimed that year as the best Cuban baseball import since ace pitcher Jose de la Caridad Mendez. He did struggle initially with the curve, and his initial impact in the talented Negro Leagues was minimal. But the young Digo, he worked hard on the swing. He showed tremendous dedication and ambition to get better. By the third year, the 20-year-old is beginning to blossom and emerge as one of the, the true masters of the Negro League style of play. He now has the timing and patience to wait on that break and react to the curves in the zone. He has back-to-back season where he bats 370. Two years after that, his average has climbed to 386. And he has pop, 18 dongs, which led the top summer Negro League circuit operating in the U.S. at that time. Deagle played baseball pretty much year-round. When the summer Negro Leagues were completed at the end of a long season, uh, he was not one to restrict himself by only playing in the United States. He would move on to Mexico, lay waste to that league, he also didn't restrict himself to just hitting and fielding for a living. Instead, he did the reverse Babe Ruth, who, you know, you know, he was a, an established ace of the Red Sox pitching staff before becoming a slugger for the ages for the Yankees. And Diga soon balled out like a freak as a converted pitching wonder. He threw that league's first new hitter that I mentioned earlier. He established all-time single-season ER marks that still stand in Mexico. In 1937 as a rookie, has a .93 ERA, and he's even better in 1938 when he posts a .92 ERA. His 119-57 and 57 record gives him a 676 winning percentage, which is also a benchmark record in the Mexican League to this day. He had double-digit wins on a half-dozen occasions, and he peaked out with 22 wins at the age of 37 with Torreon in 1942. The majority of his Negro League career, he was sparingly used on the mound as he was an elite bat on the circuit. His overall pitching performance would surely rank him among the game's greatest arms. Digo posted a 107 and 57 record in over 20 Cuban winter ball seasons, throwing the 119 Mexican League wins, along with his documented ledgers in Venezuela and the Negro Leagues. And his composite recorded record stands at 288 and 142. 
among his Cooperstown contemporaries, only Lefty Grove and Whitey Ford have better overall winning percentage than Digo. And both of those guys only excelled at one thing. Pitching. Even though he was an elite arm, as he got older, the bat never slacked. The late 20s and 30s saw Digo's batting average take off in the Cuban League. In 1925, he bats 300 to 344 in 1926. 1927, he bats 413 to 450 in 1928. In one remarkable moment, 1928, Ellen Mortal beats out teammate Willie Wells for the Cuban League batting title going 5-for-5 five five in the final game. His teammate Willie, he went 4-for-4 four four in that same game. As the seemingly ageless Digo is entering the back nine of his career, Martin found another way to challenge himself. As a player or manager, Martin led teams to league titles in Cuba in 1936 and 37, and in Mexico in 1942. He had a cheery disposition. He spoke English fluently, which made him popular with his Negro League teammates. And because of their connection with Digo, Many of the Negro Leaguers made their winter homes in Cuba during the 30s and 40s. The planet's most versatile baseball player in the history of the game. He tried his hand at umpiring in both the Cuban and Mexican leagues. He even strayed farther outside of his bubble and became a play-by-play radio broadcaster. By the early 1950s, though, he becomes uncharacteristically outspoken with a mic in his hand about the then-modern player. Some would say he sounded bitter. His playing career ended the same year that Jackie smashed the color line, and one has to wonder if that revelation had an impact on his remarkable talent that was ignored by white America, as he is surely one of segregation's most notable victims. When the Cuban Revolution started in the late 1950s, Martin Digo disappeared into obscurity behind the dense sugarcane curtain that Fidel Castro would unveil over his people. Upon his rise to power, Digo would leave his native land in 1952 to protest the American puppet regime of Fulgencio Batista, who was put in power in March of that year. And all indications show that Digo was a major player in the anti Batista socialist revolutionary cause. He supposedly helped fund Fidel and his rebel forces during his years umpiring in Mexico. Digo returns home permanently only after Fidel's revolution had succeeded. His final years were spent working in quiet support of Castro's by now fully entrenched revolutionary mo- movement. While Martin Digo's celebrated baseball status remains largely hi- hidden from mainstream America, his life away from the ballpark is even more clouded for his own countrymen. Only the barest of biographical details were ever touched by the Cuban press during his lifetime or recorded by biographers. So while Digo is a constant presence in the conscience of Cuba, many Cubans don't know why exactly. They've just been told the bare necessities. He's the greatest baseball player who ever lived, and he came from Cuba. The public record shows Digo was born May 25th, 1903. So look, Three days after this show drops, we will be celebrating his 120th birthday posthumously. He was born on the coming grounds of a sugarcane plantation located in the Montanzas province town of Limanar. He was the only child of Benito Diego and Maria Leanos. His father was a veteran soldier of the Cuban forces that fought Spain for Cuba's independence during the 1890s. He had two half-brothers, one of each belonging to each of his parents. His paternal grandparents were reportedly indentured slaves to the sugarcane fields. When he was four, the Digo family relocated to a modest wood home in the Pueblo Nuevo Barrio of Matanza City. The home stood less than 100 yards from where the apocryphal site of Cuba's first ever baseball game was played in December of 1874. It was on those hallowed grounds where Martin learned his skills that would turn him in to an all-time great. Sometime in the 1930s, the now-established star met and married Africa Reina. And their first son, Martin Diego, was born in 1943 in Mexico. 
during his father's baseball season. And a decade later, his second son, Gilberto, would be born in Cuba. Junior would try his hand in professional baseball in 1959. He signs a deal with the Cincinnati Reds. For three years, he toils in the minors along guys like uh, uh, fellow Cuban slugger Tony Perez and Pete Rose. You know, these future big red machine stars. His game was progressing, and he was destined to take his father's name into the majors. Unfortunately, tensions between the United States and Castro escalated. And with knowledge that the Soviets were attempting to put nuclear weapons on the Cuban island aimed at the United States, Washington, D.C. slams the door on Cuba in 1962. Digo Jr. returns home, and he actively supports the revolutionary cause. In 1964, he went to school in what was then East Germany, earning a degree in physical education. He still serves as a physical, physical education professor at Cienfuegos University. His younger son, Gilberto, is a sports writer working in Mexico City. The life of the great ball player ended much like he lived it, in virtual anonymity and relative obscurity. Soon after his 65th birthday, he began to have a rash of medical problems. The once robust ball player died quietly on the morning of May 21st, 1971, from cerebral thrombosis. His body was laid to rest in Cruces, and that village now houses a small yet still impressive Martin Diego Museum, just blocks from his final resting place. A period of national mourning followed his death, and a public ceremony, uh, you know, public ceremonies featuring Fidel Castro were held throughout the island. He was treated in death as a fallen hero of the revolution, even though. His reputation as a ball player, you know, as baseball royalty, was established long before Castro and far, far away from the political arena. Cuban board star, former White Sox great Minnie Mignoso, idolized El Immortal. He remembered how Diego once, Diego once let Minnie carry his shoes and glove into the stadium. And that was the only way I could afford to get in. He was a big man. Without an ounce of fat, he was a big man, but big in all ways. Big as a player, as a manager, big as a teacher, and as a man. He was my hero. While Martin Digo does boast a plaque in Cooperstown, he remains nonetheless one of, if not, the most underappreciated and overlooked Hall of Famers that ever lived. And that, boys and girls, is the story of El Inimortal. The maestro, Martin Diego, the most versatile baseball player in the history of the game, and probably its most underappreciated one as well. In three days, we're set to celebrate his 120th birthday of this legend, and I hope this pod will reach a few people and encourage them to really examine the life and career of Martin Diego. I want to thank all of you for building baseball sandcastles with me in my sandbox this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling Martine's story. And I'll try to do better next week. I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K Pod. No Patreon, no Twitch, no play to play crowdsourcing. I love you guys way too much to ever do that to you. So please support my sponsors. If you're on a platform that allows you to rate and review my performance, please do so as you f- see fit. I ain't scared. I do what I do when I do it, and I do it better than anyone else. Rating reviews help my search engine profile, helps me feed the fucking dog, and it lets me continue to do what I love doing more than anything in this world, and that's tuck the seams with all you beautiful freaks. So, yeah, stars, superlatives, hook a good brother up. And I work hard on these, but I promise I will never charge you. I'm just going to keep it coming through with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Bonds, bitch. Barry Bonds. So, with the maestro, El Immortal, firmly entrenched in our crazy collection of baseball stories, I chop the head off of our baseball hydra, only to see two more baseball topics appear. Next week's topic, 
I'm going to dip back into the stadium shows. I'm going to take a look at a stadium that totally reshaped and re-energized the crumbling infrastructure of a slowly dying city. Next week, we are going to take a look at the 10th oldest stadium in the majors, Jacob slash Progressive Field in Cleveland. And I can't wait to sink my pangs into that. I hope you'll join me, but I'm about to break out like a bad case of gout, folks. And if you enjoy these Negro League stories as much as me, I encourage you to go into the BKP archives and give a listen to the Moses Fleetwood Walker and Josh Gibson pods as I slowly begin to build up the Negro League's wing for our collection. Backwards K Pod is available on all platforms wherever you listen to your shows, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to listen to any of the shows in my always expanding vault of archives. You can email the show backwardskpod at gmail.com. If you're a Twitter user, the show handle is at back underscore K underscore pod. My personal Twitter page is at jrobbie1, that's J-R-O-B-B-I-E, and the number one. Our YouTube channel, the Instagram account, is under the Backwards K Pod banner. But you can usually find me hanging out with the fans in the Facebook private group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. The most comprehensive page in a book. Answer the questions, come on in, and join the fun. It's been an honor to be your captain. Come on back next week, and let's explore new baseball worlds and stories together. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch, got their nose and their phones on the board AF. By all means, take those little rugrats outside and play a game of catch. Jacob's Field next week. That's good shit. Can't wait. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shea Hillebrand told me at our one-on-one sit-down last year, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, you semen freaks. Peace.